1: In memory of Rosalind Elsie Franklin, Rachel Bat Reb Yehuda, 25th of July 1920 to the 16th of April 1958. And it says underneath, scientist. And one comment was left by her parents. Her research and discoveries on viruses remain
2: of lasting
1: benefit to mankind.
2: 2020 marks the centenary of the birth of Rosalind Franklin. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Natasha Loder, The Economist's Health Policy Editor. Today, in the midst of a global pandemic, we're exploring Rosalind Franklin's lifetime of
3: scientific achievements from photographing the double helix of DNA, understanding the double helix and the base pairing system within those two strands of DNA was just so hugely informative to everything that we know nowadays about the way that living things operate. To uncovering
2: the structure of plant and human viruses. She
4: found the first three-dimensional structure of any virus. She started a whole new field. The idea that you could get the three-dimensional shape of the viruses, understand their infectivity path and their
2: mechanism of action. But who was the woman behind the groundbreaking science? A
5: great many newspaper articles made Roslyn into a sort of feminist character, which was never part of her makeup at all. She was, above all, just a scientist. And why is her story so important? 100 years on.
6: Her work was absolutely foundational to the work that's being done now on the pandemic.
2: I remember watching Life Story, a TV film made for BBC's Horizon series. It was depicting the perceived race between 1950s scientists to discover the structure of DNA and as a teenager and a budding scientist I was incredibly struck by this remarkable woman in the film
6: sometimes I feel like an archaeologist breaking into a sealed tomb I don't want to touch anything I just want to look
2: Rosalind Franklin was brilliant patient and dedicated and just got on with her work she worked in a man's world, but she didn't let that define what she did or what she was able to accomplish.
6: Satisfaction doesn't come from knowing the solution.
2: It
5: comes from knowing why it's the solution. That's a very moving film, actually. I hate seeing Rosalind or any of our family on film or stage, but um, that, that one was a very fine portrayal of Rosalind. It wasn't fine of the others, but um, it was of her. And I think that had a great influence.
2: Jennifer Glynn is Rosalind Franklin's younger sister.
5: She was nine and a half years older than me. When I first remember her, she must have been about 15 or so. But I believe she showed an interest in science very early on. My mother said that she always queried everything that she was told. To use my mother's word, she could never accept a belief or statement for which no reason or proof could be produced, which is surely a sign of a scientist when very young. As a child, Rosalind
2: was fascinated with developing photographs. Her grandparents even created a dark room in the shed in the garden.
5: My brother Colin described in his words, she enjoyed swelling the sensitised paper in a tray of water and watching the image appear. And I remember, Colin writes, her exclamation, which pleased my mother, it makes me feel all squidgy inside.
6: So it seemed as though her destiny in life was mapped out for her
2: from a very young age. Patricia Farrer is a historian of science and an
6: Emeritus Fellow of Clare College, Cambridge. She was certainly a very, very clever child and she was very, very demanding right from a young age. She set herself extremely high standards and that of course led to difficulties when she felt that she hadn't achieved what she was demanding of herself. I think that's a very common trait amongst very clever people and that was a problem for her. And how did those problems manifest themselves? well like a lot of students in exams and this is something that I still meet very frequently particularly young women that they lack confidence in themselves they set themselves such high standards that anything short of perfection is not good enough and I remind them rather condescendingly well you are only a student being a student is about learning but that doesn't always help when you're sitting in the exam room and you're not convinced that you're doing your best But Franklin was an extremely successful
2: student. In 1938, she began her undergraduate studies at the University of Cambridge. She studied natural sciences, focusing on chemistry.
5: I remember that she'd worked very hard before going and was very keen to go. The family were very impressed that she got her place. There were only two women's colleges in Cambridge in those days, and it was hard to get a place there. When she was in her fourth year as a research student, I went to stay with her. And she was a very thoughtful hostess and did all the things that a child could possibly enjoy. And, and I can remember that week very well. Um, we went on the cam and did all the obvious sights. She also took me to see the Baker in Newnham. Village, stirring a great bat of dough, which was rather an imaginative thing to take a child to see, and I can remember it very well. And um, obviously, would put herself out to be a very good hostess, even to someone aged twelve or so, as I was.
6: she'd finished her degree she wanted to do a PhD but the war had started and she decided really as a very patriotic person she wanted to contribute to the war effort and she started doing research into coal. Coal is obviously very important for fuel during the wartime and she started specialising in charcoal and graphite and those substances were used in gas masks which you could call the PPE of the Second World War. Of course it was not called PPE at the time but I wanted to strengthen and the comparison that gas masks were what people were protecting themselves with at the time. And, you know, before 2020, who would have thought that we'd be wandering around in masks, which we are. But the work that she did on graphite and coal was groundbreaking, and she's always cited as one of the pioneers. After the Second World War, Franklin moved to Paris,
2: where she continued to study coal and graphite. Here she honed her X-ray crystallography skills. By passing X-rays through crystalline forms of molecules, you can see a three-dimensional picture of the molecular structure. It was the way to find out what biological molecules looked like.
5: She'd always enjoyed France. She went for six weeks before going to Cambridge, learning French. She always felt a pull towards anyone French and any French activities. She had a great deal of pleasure from meeting a French refugee scientist in Unum, Adrienne Vey, who had worked with Marie Curie And after the war. Adrienne Vey told her that there were two French scientists coming to a meeting in London on coal research and they would be interested to meet her and see what she could do. that really led to her working in Paris, which she thought she would go for a year or two. She actually went for four years.
6: She learned how to become an expert x-ray crystallographer when she was in France. And it was the most enjoyable time in her life. She was in a very good laboratory. She was treated equally by everybody else. She had no idea of the problems that were lying ahead of her. In
5: Paris, she had been extremely happy. She'd been with a very international group of scientists and she'd enjoyed that and a lot of women in the lab too and all treated very equally as I understand it most labs at that time women were very much a second rate citizen in England Franklin's
2: love of France wasn't just in the lab she enjoyed spending time in the Alps to get away from it all.
5: She always was a passionate mountain climber and interested in anything outdoors. And every opportunity, I think, although we were brought up in London, she would go off on weekends into the countryside. She enjoyed mountains and she loved to visit the views from the top. And she was a very fearless climber, but she was never a rock climber for the sake of climbing. It was always for the sake of getting up the mountains.
2: In early 1951, she moved back to England as she missed her family and friends. At King's College in London, she started to work on the structure of biological molecules. She used her skills in X-ray crystallography to look at the most fascinating molecule of them all, DNA. She had
4: some fibres
2: of DNA
4: which was supplied by a Swiss collaborator, and they crystallised well.
2: So that's an ordered piece of matter, a crystal. Elspeth Garman is a professor of molecular biophysics at the University of Oxford. And she shone the
4: x-rays on these fibres, but she very especially controlled the hydration of the fibres. And in that way, she saw both A-form and B-form DNA. Now, A form is a dehydrated form and B form is the hydrated form. How did she manage to photograph the structure of the crystallised DNA? All the molecules are lined up like synchronised swimmers in a swimming pool so that they're all facing the same direction. They might not all be identical. Some might have bigger noses than others, for instance, but their basic structure is the same. And from the interference pattern that We get, when we shine x-rays onto these very, very small molecules, we can get back to the three-dimensional shape of the swimmer, if you like, or of the
2: molecule. In the lab at King's, Rosalind Franklin and her PhD student Raymond Gosling were working on photographing the A form of DNA, while Maurice Wilkins was working on the B form. Franklin's most famous work, was an image called Photograph 51, which was of the B form of DNA.
4: They ended up with this beautiful, beautiful, the best picture of DNA B ever taken. But because they weren't supposed to be working on it, they put it in a drawer and they didn't say anything about it. Until in January 1953, Ray Gosling wanted to write his thesis up and his official thesis supervisor was actually Maurice Wilkins. So he took this photograph along and said, oh, can I put this in my thesis? Should I put this in my thesis? And Maurice Wilkins immediately realized it was fantastic. And he then showed it to James Watson, who was visiting from Cambridge without Rosalind Franklin knowing. Watson and Crick were trying to build a model and Watson had realized straight away that this cross pattern on photograph 51 meant that the DNA must be a helix. Francis Crick realized that the symmetry that Rosalind Franklin had decided these crystals had meant that there must be an even number of DNA strands because it must look the same one way up as if you turned it through 180 degrees to the other way up. You can imagine it as a cylinder and it doesn't matter which way up you put it because you've got a spiral staircase running down, intertwining
2: one in one direction, one in the other direction. The work of Rosalind Franklin, James Watson and Francis Crick allowed the world to finally see what the structure of DNA looked like it was one of the most important scientific discoveries of the 20th century. Many describe Franklin as the unsung hero of DNA. It was almost a decade later when Watson, Crick, and Wilkins, Franklin's colleague at King's, won a Nobel Prize for this work.
3: DNA is the blueprint for our existence. Like, inside every cell, we have DNA instructions for every piece of machinery. That we need to operate and keep us healthy.
2: Rivka Isaacson is a biophysicist at King's College London.
3: And, you know, understanding the double helix and the base pairing system within those two strands of DNA was just so hugely informative to everything that we know nowadays about the way that living things operate. It showed you how the DNA can replicate itself in a true way like it has kind of its own template built in and finding out that structure really enabled us to understand that process and also understanding the structure and the way that the DNA double helix interacts with various proteins. It solved the idea of how can this insanely long piece of DNA fit inside this tiny tiny little nucleus of a cell. We're really lucky because now that we have such a good understanding of the structure of DNA we can produce a gene for anything that we want. Franklin's pictures of DNA played a key role
2: in the development of genetics but despite Franklin's successes at King's College it wasn't a happy time. Her relationship with Morris Wilkins was fractured from the start because he had the incorrect impression that she worked for him. The environment was challenging too. It was misogynistic. She wasn't even allowed to use the common room, which was only for men. All in all, it was a far cry from her happy years in Paris. In 1953, just two years after starting her work on DNA, Rosalind Franklin decided to move on to an entirely new challenge in science.
0: Visit bankofamerica.com bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
1: So here we are at the Franklin family plot and it's quite close to the front of the cemetery.
2: Hester Abrams is the project leader of the Wilson Jewish Cemetery House of Life Heritage Project in Northwest London. She's been exploring the lives of several notable people who are buried there.
1: So we're at Rosalind's grave and it says, in memory of Rosalind Elsie Franklin, scientist. Her research and discoveries on viruses remain of lasting benefit to mankind.
2: Viruses, not DNA. It was at Birkbeck College in central London. Where Franklin's research on viruses began.
4: At King, she had very good facilities and wonderful facilities, but she was miserable there because she wasn't even allowed into the common room to have her lunch because it was men only. I mean, it was the most appalling setup. And when she moved to Burtbeck, her X ray room in the basement actually had a leaking roof. And if she did experiment, she had to have an umbrella so that she didn't get wet. So she said that she had exchanged, you know, a palace for a a hovel but she still loved it at Birkbeck.
2: Elspeth Garman from Oxford University again.
4: She found the
2: first three-dimensional
4: structure of any virus which was tobacco mosaic virus which was a financially disastrous crop if it got into tobacco because it doesn't only infect tobacco it, it affects other plants as well and at the time it didn't really understand where the RNA was where the proteins were. And she found from her measurements that the proteins were all on the outside and the RNA was coiled inside, but that there was a hollow core down the center, and that all the viruses were around the same length of 300 nanometers. That actually was a very fundamental discovery to understanding the mechanism of in infection of tobacco mosaic virus. She famously went to the bicycle shop and bought 300 rubber bicycle handlebar handles you know the things that go over the end of the handlebars to build the model which were the proteins on the outside which was many copies of the same protein and it was coiled around the central core of the RNA like a helix again and there was a model of this which went to the Brussels 1958 exhibition. She also was trailblazing in terms of the methodology that she used. That's been used to very good effect to solve the structure of many other viruses now, rhinovirus, cold virus, so she started a whole new field. The idea that you could get the three-dimensional shape of the viruses, understand their infectivity path and their mechanism of action, because she moved on from tobacco mosaic virus to many other viruses potato viruses and a whole list of them actually,
2: that she studied, plant viruses, and then to polio right at the end. Franklin's final project was to investigate the structure of the polio virus, which
6: caused numerous deadly epidemics throughout the 20th century. Aaron Klug, who was in her team, he'd specifically asked to work with her. He thought she was a marvellous researcher, a marvellous team leader. He continued that work on the polio virus after she died and then later he got the Nobel Prize for that work which suggests very strongly that had she lived she also would have been awarded the Nobel Prize. Patricia Farrar, historian of science, believes that Franklin's work is relevant for researchers on today's Covid-19 pandemic. She was born in 1920 so I think it's quite symbolic that a hundred years later we're all absolutely preoccupied with viruses and she was one of the founding scientists in the field everyone's desperately trying to find vaccines and tests and cures and everything else and to develop those sort of techniques you have to have done the basic science and the more you know about viruses in general the more rapidly doctors are going to be able to work out a cure or remedy or a preventive measure for this particular one so yes her work was absolutely absolutely foundational to the work that's being done now on the pandemic. On the
2: 16th of April, 1958, Rosalind Franklin died after a two-year battle with ovarian cancer. Incredibly, over 60 years on, Franklin's work on viruses is still cited by
6: researchers and taught in universities today the tobacco mosaic virus, or TMV. It's still the organism that first-year undergraduates examine at Cambridge that's still being taught now. So it's really, really foundational. And she was the person who worked out the structure. It's much more complicated than the DNA structure. So I think that's why she deserves to be remembered. She carried out groundbreaking work into viruses. Unfortunately, in my opinion, the reason she's remembered more often is as a victim of male oppression. In 1968, ten years after she died, James Watson
2: published The Double Helix, a personal account of the discovery of the structure of DNA. The book was criticised for having sexist attitudes towards Rosalind Franklin. It barely recognised her contribution to the discovery of
6: DNA and criticised her appearance in the lab. I'm rather embarrassed to say I read it when I was a student and I recognised that it was sort of quite misogynistic, but I didn't think anything was wrong with that because at the time I was reading a degree in physics at Oxford and I was one out of eight young women in a class of over 200 men and I sort of was brainwashed into accepting the fact that women should be marginalised. And looking back at my teenage self, I'm rather angry about it, but that's that's how life was then.
5: My mother was extremely upset by it. In fact, it's on record of saying she'd rather people forgot about Rosalind than remembered her through Watson's eyes.
2: Jennifer Glenn, Rosalind Franklin's younger sister.
5: On the other hand, it did, of course, produce a great reaction of people being indignant on Rosalind's behalf. And um, in a way, kick started the sort of Roslyn industry that there has been. First of all, Roslyn's friend Anne Sayre decided she must write a book on Roslyn's behalf to answer Watson in a way that Roslyn could no longer do so herself. There were a great many newspaper articles, and it grew in a way that seems very strange because it made Roslyn into a sort of Feminist character, which was never part of her makeup at all. She was above all just a scientist, um, not trying to blaze the way for women in science. On the other hand, she would, of course, be very pleased at the way that it has done so and helps girls get encouraged in science.
2: Do you see her now as a feminist icon?
5: Well, I know that she is portrayed as such. And (laughs) no, I don't. But I can see that she is put that way. And it's all part of the recognition of of her work, really. But it's never a, a way of seeing her. She's a scientist, really, not a feminist.
1: Rosalind Franklin was a pioneering scientist who happened to be a woman. I think she has become a feminist icon, or at least she's been adopted as a kind of poster girl for women in science. And I think that's justified... But people were not feminists in those days. They literally put up with what they put up with. But I could have imagined her as somebody very clear in asserting what she knew. And because she was in a field where you would demonstrate things. I think she was highly competitive. And that that's no bad thing. And of course there were office politics. And in her story there were missed opportunities and missed communications. And people she didn't particularly get on brilliantly with. And... You know, we've all been in those situations. How can you tell what someone's going to read into something? But I think her science, you know, just stands head and shoulders above these kind of petty arguments.
3: I was introduced recently as the first female Jewish biophysics group leader at King's College since Rosalind Franklin. And I was pretty surprised to hear that. She is an icon, a feminist icon of crystallography, That's for sure. And she's always been in my consciousness, I'd say, ever since I started studying science. Everything you read about her, like, I think the first book and the first scandalous book was The Double Helix written by James Watson. And he portrayed her very unfairly. I think that was widely acknowledged, but he did it for kind of comic effect and to sell his book. And, you know, he's not well known for being an ally of women. She sounds, you know, very determined, very passionate, very friendly, knew how to have a good time. She seems just like a very well-rounded and amazing person. Like, it would have been awesome to meet her.
2: Over the years, different conclusions have been drawn about what Rosalind Franklin's life meant – James Watson tried to paint a picture of her as unimportant and then she became a feminist icon, an example of what it was like to be a talented woman in the almost exclusively male world of science at the time. But I feel like we've arrived now at a different point where we can judge her simply for who she really was. She was a gifted scientist who defined her life and her work on her own terms, right up to her untimely death. That Is an inspirational story because she did great science regardless of the obstacles in her way. Thank you for listening to Babbage. Our thanks to Jennifer Glynn, Patricia Farah, Elspeth Garman, Rivka Isaacson, and Hester Abrams. For more of our journalism, head to slash podcast offer, where you can find your best introductory deal. The link is in the description of this episode. I'm Natasha Loda, and in London. this is The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with Good Credit, from a local business to a global corporation.